This is part four of a series called Unity, Diversity, and Maturity in the Body of Christ. And I want to just review with you where we've been the last three weeks. We've taught through chapter 12. And chapter 12 has really been about the spiritual gifts. Paul talks about the author and the giver of the spiritual gifts. And it's God himself. It's the Holy Spirit. And he's talked about what the purpose of the gifts were. And the purpose was to manifest the Holy Spirit, to make known the power of the Holy Spirit in the world. That's purpose number one. Purpose number two was to edify the body of Christ. God has given each of us unique gifts for the purpose of bringing Him glory by making His name known, by serving each other in the body of Christ. Those are the two main points that He wanted to get across in chapter 12. Now, the Corinthians, not unlike us in America, perverted their spiritual gifts. They were jealous of each other's gifts. They lorded their gifts over others. They were proud and they were arrogant. And Paul admonished them for that. And in the last few verses, actually the last verse of chapter 12, verse 31, Paul said, desire the greater gifts. He says, if the giftedness is missing in your body, it's okay to desire them. So in verse 31, Paul says, desire the greater gifts. And what he's talking about there is not desire gifts for your benefit and for you to be exalted and puffed up. Or don't covet somebody else's gifts, but desire gifts that are missing in the body. Look around you. Ask the Lord what's missing and desire for those gifts for the benefit of the body. But then he says something that is so profound, and it took him 31 verses to get there. He says, but there's a more excellent way. And what he's saying there is there's something more excellent. There's something greater. There's something more important than the gifts themselves, and that's love. And last week we talked about the first three verses in chapter 13. And basically what Paul said in those three verses is exercising our giftedness, our unique wiring, exercising it, even if it's for the benefit of the body, even if it is to make known the name of Jesus Christ, if it is done without love, what is it? It's worthless. It's worth nothing. Those are Paul's words, not mine. We are all uniquely and specially and perfectly gifted. And the Lord can use those gifts in our life, and He will use those gifts in our life to bring Him glory and to edify the body of Christ, if and only if we put love in front of those gifts. Amen? And as I told you last week, it is so ironic that I'm teaching during this time. Because, and there's no false humility here. I'm the most loveless person I know. And I'm going to put a lot of personal life examples in this message today. And my prayer to you is that, that you would look inside and that the Lord would convict you, would prompt your heart, not condemn you. See the difference? There's no condemnation, but that he would convict you, that he would show you the areas in your life that you're loveless. I would submit to you that there's no more powerful four verses in the Bible than what we're going to go over here today. It's all about the gospel. Christ is all over this. Because the love that he wants us to extend to others is the same love that he's shown for us. It's the same love that that he extended to us when we were dead, when we were yet sinners. We're going to talk today about the 15 qualities of love that we find in verses 4 through 7. And you can see on the uh, bulletins, it shows that we're going to go through all, all 13 verses. We're not. And praise the Lord, my brother Dino is ready in season and out of season. 
because he was supposed to start on 14 next week, and he's going to start on 1 Corinthians 13, wherever I end up. Thank you, brother. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name. God, move me out of the way. Lord, I pray that I would not bring any offense to your word today. I pray that everybody in this worship center today would look past me. And Lord, that you would speak to the heart. That you would show us areas that, that we're lacking love. That you'd prompt us. You'd convict us. But Lord, don't let the enemy lie to us. The enemy wants to lie to us at times. And he wants to tell us that we are condemned. And there's no condemnation. And Lord, I pray that you would just minister to each of our hearts as you've been ministered to my heart this week. I pray, God, that if there's anybody in here that does not know the love of Christ, yeah, they're nice words, but they've not taken it to heart. It's not an inward reality. I pray, Father, that you would soften those hearts today. As we talk about love, that they would just see Christ, that they would just see the image of Christ and the amazing love that you had for us and laid your life down for us. We love you, and we commit this time to you. God's people said, Amen. Let's read these first four verses together. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. It says this, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly or rude. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And we're going to break this apart in three pieces. First, we're going to talk about the first two qualities of love, patience and kindness. And then we're going to talk about eight characteristics that do not represent love. And then the final four characteristics of love. The first qualities of love is patience and kindness. Patience. This word is a reference to people, not circumstances. Paul is telling us that love is patient with people. It's long-suffering. In light of God's patience towards us, how is it that we cannot patiently and forbear with one another? In 2 Peter 3.9, it says this, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What if the Lord was not patient with you and I? I mean, he's been patient from, for thousands of years from the time that Eve sinned. Think of all the people. Eve disobeyed thousands of years ago. He's been wrong and rejected over and over again by us, by the people that he made in his image. Yet throughout time, he's been long-suffering. Patience is passive. It's taking it. It's standing back and taking it. Patience is passive. We're going to talk about kindness in a minute. And kindness is active. It's the other side of the coin. Patience never takes revenge for being hurt, insulted, or abused. It's passive. A patient person refuses to pay back evil for evil. If he's slapped on the left cheek, he turns the right cheek. That's patience. It's contrary to the world we live in, isn't it? We want to get back, back, back. 
Christ is the ultimate example of patience. Let's take a look at kindness. Kindness, as I said, is active. It's the other side of the coin of patience. It's the readiness to do good, to help, to relieve burdens, to be useful, to serve, to be tender, and to be sympathetic to others. Patience will take anything from others. Kindness will give anything to others. You see that? Patience will take anything. Kindness will give anything. Christ was the ultimate example of kindness. We see it in Romans 2 and Titus 3. Do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Christ was so kind that he actually suffered and died for us. He gave his entire self to the point of death for you and I. Titus 3 says, But the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Kindness is active. And it's hard to be kind when we're wronged. Now, it's no coincidence the way that Paul put this together. He talked about the two primary qualities of love, patience and kindness. And then he goes on to eight things, eight characteristics that do not represent love. Things that are inconsistent with love. These eight character qualities that are inconsistent with love divided the church at Corinth. And quite frankly, it divides the church today as well. Not necessarily the church at Windsor Community Church, although it it can have a tendency to do that, but certainly the universal church around the world. The first character quality that is inconsistent with love is love is not jealous. And there's two types of jealousy. The first is, I want what you have. You got a nicer car than me. You got a bigger house. You've got a better job. You ladies might say that some of you wives have husbands that understand you. Some of you men might say that you've got wives that respect you. It's the first type of jealousy is I want something that someone else has. The second and the worst type of jealousy is wishing that the other person did not have what they had. See the two different types? One is, is I want what you have. The other is, I know I can't have it, so I don't want you to have it. That's the worst type of jealousy. That's malice. That's wanting evil for somebody else. In 1 Kings 3, I don't know if you remember the story, but a baby had died. And the mother whose baby died went and actually stole another baby. It's kind of a, it's a terrible story. And the mother who had her healthy baby stolen went and reported it to King Solomon. And Solomon preceded over a hearing and could not make up his mind which mother was a real mother. So he said, we'll cut the baby in two and we'll give you each a half. Guess what happened? The real mother of this healthy child said, no, don't kill my baby. She can have it. The selfish mom didn't care about having the baby. She just didn't want the other one to have it. It's an extreme example, and I hope I didn't offend anybody, but it's the best example I can find about desiring that somebody else not have something. Eve was jealous of God in the garden. She wanted the power that God had. Cain was jealous of Abel. Babylonian officials were jealous of Daniel and threw him to the lions. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because of jealousy. The brother of the prodigal son was jealous of his father's affection for the returning son. Jealousy has been around for a long time. And brothers and sisters, I struggle with it all the time. 
All the time, down in my heart, I have discontent. Because, you know, why is it going so well for somebody else when it's not going well in this area for me? We're going to talk about that love actually rejoices when things are going well for people. It doesn't get jealous. Proverbs 27 says, wrath is fierce and anger is a flood. But who can stand before jealousy? God is saying that jealousy is worse than wrath or anger. There's nothing that divides families and friendships and churches more than jealousy. And its extreme jealousy has a viciousness shared by no other sin. James 3 says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there's disorder. And every evil thing. And jealousy. This really surprised me when I started reading this. You know, because I think of jealousy, I think of, you know, teenage stuff. You know, being jealous over somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend, that type of thing. God is saying that jealousy is infecting the church. And I don't know where it's affecting. I know it affects my own heart many times. You know, loving people are never jealous. They are glad for the success of others. Even if others' success works against their own. If you're taking notes, I put a bullet at each one of these about what loving people are. And if nothing else, write that down. Loving people are never jealous. The second characteristic or character quality inconsistent with love is that love does not brag. It's the other side of jealousy. Jealousy is wanting something that somebody else has. Bragging is making somebody else want what you have. See the difference? Braggarts are preoccupied with self and constantly talk about their three most favorite people. Me, myself, and I. Have you ever talked with somebody for the first time? Maybe second time? Maybe fifth time? You've talked with them for hours? And you know every single detail about them. You know the awards they got. You know the accolades. You know how fast they ran the 40 in high school. You knew about their first girlfriend. You know how good looking they were. You knew when they were skinny when they were younger. And you walk away and you go, I'm not even sure he knows my name. That's a braggart. And that's a test for a braggart. Use that in your own heart. When you're in conversations with people, are you asking more questions about other people? Or you have the desire to let them know everything about you? Loving, loving people are not braggarts. And they delight in focusing attention on others. Loving people delight in seeing other people shine and giving other people the spotlight, moving out of the spotlight themselves. That's what loving people do. Proverbs 27 says, Let another praise you, not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. So somebody else is going to sing your praises. First, you've got to check and see if it's flattery or if they're lying. But if they're going to do it, don't you do it, but let other people do it. Christ never boasted. Never boasted. The God of the universe never boasted. In Philippians 2, it says, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't boast about it. He emptied himself to the point of death. He emptied himself. He came down here in humility and love for us to lay down his life so that we can have eternal life. Is there, is there anybody that had more to boast about than Christ? Third quality inconsistent with love is arrogance. Love is not arrogant. 
means literally puffed up, prideful, inflated arrogance. Arrogance thinks more of self and has a tendency to look down at others. You know, and I struggle with this too. You know what? I struggle with it a lot more when I had something to be arrogant about. When I was actually making some money and I had a prestigious job. And I'm so thankful that the Lord stripped me of those things. Not that any of those things are bad. I would love to have a full bank account again. You know, it's kind of cool of people to think of you a certain way. It has a tendency to look down on people. Economic status, occupation, college degree. I think you know what I'm talking about. We all struggle with that. Somebody that doesn't exercise. Somebody that smokes. Somebody that exercises too much. Romans 12 says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And I believe the lowly here is anybody that you look down on. Anybody that's not like you. Is there anybody in your own heart that you've made lowly? Loving people treat others respectfully, not arrogantly. They give equal respect, particularly to people that are not like them. They humbly serve and lift up others, not themselves. Love is not arrogant. Fourth characteristic, inconsistent with love. Love does not act unbecomingly. Translation, love is not rude. Love does not act disgracefully. It does not act contrary to established standards of proper conduct and decency. And there's a real cultural aspect to that that we need to be aware of. Not just from country to country, but from community to community. There is some churches where the preacher wouldn't dare get up without a tie. And there's communities like this that if I had a tie on, you'd chuckle, wouldn't you? Unless it was Easter or Christmas or something like that. Here are some examples of love acting rudely. Inappropriate dress. I don't know what that looks like other than wherever you are. Paul says... That he was all things to all people that he might save some. What he's saying there is that whatever culture he was immersed in, he wasn't compromising the gospel. But he would eat the same foods they ate. He would dress the same dress that they had. He would do as they did. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Inconsiderate talk. The way we talk around the boys, guys, isn't the way that we necessarily talk around our wives and our kids. And I'm not saying that we should be different in different environments, but there's just, you know, guys just, we just talk different. You know, guys show affection by saying, How you doing, ugly? How you doing, fat so? <laughs> Girls just don't do that kind of stuff. Another way that we're rude is we disregard other people's time or moral conscience. Guilty. It is, the, it, is, it is so rude, and we're so guilty of it. Many of you are amazingly how prompt you are. But when we're rude, we're thinking of ourselves as more important than the other person. We're not valuing the other person's time. We're being flat-out rude. Taking advantage of people. 
is another way that we're rude. Tactlessness. There is a guy that I love listening to. I love listening to the guy. And he is, um, he is one of the most doctrinally sound pastors I know. He's in the Northwest. And he's affectionately called by his peers as the cussing pastor. We would never preach the way he preached. And he doesn't use vulgar profanities. He just uses some things that wouldn't fly here. And he has a church that he ministers to of, of bikers, of people that are just crude. And, and, they're, and they're, oh, that's terrible. Please forgive me for that. <laughs> He's got a congregation of people that are lost, that are stockbrokers, bikers. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Did I get myself out of that one? But tactlessness does not work. Know what audience you're speaking to, whether it be one-on-one with your wife, small group setting, big congregation, promise keepers rally, halftime at a basketball game. You're going to have different levels of tact. Another way of being rude is ignoring the contributions and ideas of others. We're all valuable. We're all made in the image of Christ. And everybody has value. Husbands, if you're not listening to your wife's input, you are rude and disobedient. God has given you your bride as a helper, as a completer. It doesn't feel good when when we're ignored, does it? When we've got a certain gift in us, we feel like the Lord's given us something and our opinion is ignored. It's the ultimate form, one of the ultimate forms of rudeness. Another form is inappropriate behavior with the opposite sex. That speaks for itself. And then a general disregard for proper social conduct kind of wraps it up. General disregard for proper social conduct. Rudeness can interfere with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Folks, you know, there's this whole thing with lifestyle evangelism being missional. And I've signed on the dotted line. I believe that God's primary vehicle for reaching the lost is us. And it's done in one-on-one and small group relationships. It's not done here necessarily. But let's not give offense to the gospel. We want to be ourselves. We want to love people. We want to be friends. But let's make sure that people know where we stand. And let's not be rude that it actually dilutes or even cancels out anything we say about Christ. Does that make sense? Loving people are considerate of how their behavior affects others. Even in the little things. Let's look at the fifth characteristic. Love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. The all-consuming focus we have on self and our rights in America is completely contrary to how Christ wants us to live in love. You know, if Christ had sought his own advantage, there would be no cross. Christ was selfless, not selfish. Christ certainly did not seek his own. In Romans 15, it says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, for the neighbor's good, for his neighbor's edification. For even Christ did not please himself. We should not use our liberties to excuse selfishness. We've got a lot of freedoms as Christians, don't we? Let me name a few of them. Drinking. Smoking. Dancing. Eating. Those are freedoms, aren't they? Now, it gives us ground rules when to use those freedoms and if we should use them. And each person has their own convictions. But they're freedoms. Let's not use these liberties or freedoms to excuse our selfishness. Let's think of others as more important than ourselves. You know, and I, I really don't care. I'm a, I'm, um, okay. I have an occasional cigar. I do. It's very occasional. Mitch brought me one back from Ecuador, Nicaragua. It's all made out of the same cow dung, but it's... It, it's And I didn't smoke it, I chewed on it. I didn't inhale it. (laughs) But I did just chew it. But I would have smoked it, but it dried out before I could. But I'm probably not going to break out the cigar at Saturday morning men's breakfast. Or out front here as I'm preparing for the message. Send me emails, don't call me. Romans 14 says, if because of food or smoke or drink, your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food, with your dancing, your smoking, or whatever your liberty is. Do not destroy with your food him whom Christ died. The only reason we're here is to be the mouthpiece of the Lord Jesus Christ to see people saved and yeah it's God's sovereign drawing it's his grace that he extends that saves people but somehow we play a role in it he uses us and he says not to add offense to the gospel and by abusing our liberties by being selfish and thinking of our own interest above others it dilutes and even pollutes the gospel Next characteristic that is inconsistent with the love is that love is not provoked. Provoked? I really just didn't even want to go over this one. I was going to skip it. But I knew Nancy would have caught it. (laughs) Provoked means to arouse an anger. A convulsion or sudden outburst of anger or temper. Some of you have been on the other side. Of my quick temper. Provoked has to do with things done against us. Or that are personally offensive. You know what? It doesn't say, this is, this is we're on the receiving end that Paul's talking about. He says love is not provoked. He does, this doesn't mean we're not provoking others. Even though we shouldn't. It's saying we're going to be provoked. We're going to be tempted. But what he's saying here is, is, is don't give in to it. Don't get angry. Sure, there's a righteous anger, but most of it's not. Being provoked is the other side of seeking one's own way. If we are selfish, if we, were, if we are seeking our own benefit, 
We have an agenda. And guess what? If we don't get that agenda, or if, or if people don't respond to us in the way that we want to be responded to, they don't respect us in the way we want to be respected, we tend to get angry. The person who is intent on seeking his own way is easily provoked and easily angered. Lovelessness is the cause of temper. And I can't tell you. You know, sometimes, man, I am just dense. You know, we all are. We're sheep. We'll follow each other off into the river. I'm 49 years old. Uh, I'll be 50 this year. Thank you. It's like a melodrama. And it's just been this past week and a half that the Lord has showed me that the reason I'm quick-tempered is because I'm loveless. How could you ever be quick-tempered with somebody if you're really thinking of their benefit is, is more important than yourself? How can you ever do it? It's impossible. I'm just thankful the Lord is not quick-tempered. Amen? He's long-suffering. He's a forbearing God. He has had a right to wipe us out of the existence from day one. But he's been long-suffering. Out-of-control anger is a work of the flesh and the devil. We're in this flesh, but we've got God's Spirit in us. We've got the power of God to overcome anything, any kind of sin. If you go into a situation where you're going to be provoked, where it's, it's that person, it's that event, gird yourself up. Call a brother or sister and have them pray for you. Don't go there. Guard yourself from self-justification when you get angry or irritated by someone who is disagreeable or sees things different than you do. It's easy to be justified in our anger, isn't it? Well, if he or she just if she wouldn't have done that to me, I wouldn't have had a reason to get angry. Think about it. I know at least for me, and I know I'm not the only oddball here, is that 99% of the time when I am provoked to anger, when I pull that trigger and I convulse, it's because of irritation and frustration. Not because somebody sinned. The only time we should be angry is when there's an offense to God or there's an offense to other people. That's righteous anger. Loving people are not irritated by every little disagreement. Or frustration. James 1 says, Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Seventh characteristic, inconsistent with love. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. If you're married, listen up. Listen up. This is the primary reason for broken relationships in the body of Christ friendships, and certainly in marriages. This is an image of keeping records of wrongs with a view of paying back the person that wronged you. Right in the journal. Taking a record of wrongs. Love does not take into an account, this is a bookkeeping term, a wrong suffered. Folks, if we don't let go of emotional wounds, and if we're compelled to get even with those who have sinned or wronged us, I'll tell you, the ones that wrong us the most... I know the one I wrong the most is my wife. And this is where the enemy takes a foothold, is when we take accounts 
And when you're taking an account, it's a lack of forgiveness. If you don't let go of those emotional wounds, and if you are compelled to get even with others that have wronged you, you will be devoured by bitterness, anger, and unforgiveness. I've seen many times where it leads to physical illness. Unforgiveness is a cancer that eats you from the inside out. And folks, there's many of you that have had tremendous, tremendous hurts and wrongs in your life. They're real. It goes back to childhood, maybe an abusive marriage. And I am not judging any of your hearts. But I can just tell you the Lord doesn't want you to hang on to those wrongs. It might be years until you can totally forget it. But don't make a ledger of it. Release the person that wronged you. The Lord does not take into account your offenses against Him. Romans 4 says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Amen? In God's heavenly record, the only entry after the names of His redeemed, you know what the record is? You know how it's stamped? Righteous. 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 There's nothing He holds against us. He does not hold any wrongs against us. Is that freedom or what? Loving people move towards forgiveness and even seek to bless the offender. That's complete forgiveness. And I put down here, move towards forgiveness. Forgiveness, I understand, is is an act of the will. But we have the power of God in us to forgive anybody for any wrong that they've done against us. And move toward, if somebody's wronged you, try blessing them. Move towards them. You know, the best way to have bitterness work in your heart is when somebody wronged you, is just is walk away from them. If you want bitterness to work in your heart, is don't make it right with your bride or with your husband, ladies. Let it fester and fester and fester. And then that account is being written on your heart and it's going to be harder to take it out of your heart. Move towards people quickly and bless them. Romans 12 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. That's a foreign concept. I have a hard time with that. I don't know how it works in athletics. You know, I tell my boys, you know, I mean, don't let him do that to you. Knock his head off. Bless him after you knock his head off. <laughs> Romans 12, 19 through 21 says, Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know when you've just done something sinful? When you've just blown it? You know what I'm talking about? Nod so I know that I'm talking to people that got real life issues. And you know the person you've wronged, your spouse, when you're still human, and you're not ready to repent yet, and your spouse moves towards you, and blesses you. It just makes you melt, doesn't it? It makes it easier to repent. Let's look at the last characteristic that is inconsistent with love. It says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, 
Love does not take satisfaction in other people's sin, whether it's our own sin or that of others. Rejoicing in sin is wrong because it is an affront to the holy God. If we love God, what offends Him should offend us. What grieves Him should grieve us. Rejoicing in sin is also wrong because of the consequences it has on the one who sins. When somebody else sins, we should not rejoice in it. We know it's taken an offense to the Lord. And we know that the person that has sinned, if they continue in that sin, there's going to be consequences. We should never rejoice in somebody else's sin. Now get this, because I didn't see it at first, and I totally see it. I think it is the primary cancer in the world today, particularly amongst believers. The most common form of rejoicing in sin is gossip. It's gossip. Gossips would do little harm if they did not have so many eager listeners. Gossip that is true is still gossip. It's the way that unfavorable truth is passed on. Why would we ever talk to somebody about somebody else's sin? We're going to talk about in a minute that love bears all things. It means it actually covers up somebody else's sin. And we're gossiping. It is the worst form of rejoicing in unrighteousness. When we talk to others, we should be talking about what, the, what Christ is doing in each other's lives. And what we see Christ doing in other people's lives. There is no benefit. And folks, I have no idea if there's gossip in this body or, or to what level. I just know what I'm prone to. Loving people rejoice with the truth, not in wrongdoing. We should never rejoice in wrongdoing. And when we gossip, we are rejoicing. We're spreading the wrongdoing of somebody else. If somebody has a different definition of gossip, tell me after the service. It's the most comprehensive definition I can find. It's when we rejoice in the sin of other people. Loving people rejoice when they see people walking with the Lord. That's what you rejoice in. There's nothing that makes me happier. To see people walking in the Spirit. Second John verse 6 says, This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. We should rejoice when others walk in the truth. There's four last qualities of love that Paul talks about here. Praise God, I think we're going to have time for them. And the first quality is that love bears all things. It bears all things. And it literally means to cover up or to support. It protects the sinner from exposure, ridicule, or harm. That's what bearing up means. Fallen human nature has a reverse inclination. Sometimes we take perverse pleasure in exposing someone's faults or failures. That's not bearing all things. Love does not expose, gloat, or condemn somebody else's sin. It bears, it covers up. It does not B-A-R-E-S. It does not bear or expose. It covers up. Proverbs 10 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. In the cross, Christ's love forever covered the sin of those who trust in Him. It's covered up, never to be exposed again. Number two, love believes all things. It's not suspicious. It's not cynical. It believes in the best outcome for the one who's done the wrong. It believes all things. It believes that the wrong will be confessed and forgiven and the loved one restored in righteousness. Husbands, wives, 
Do you believe all things? It's really believing, particularly and primarily in the context of speaking about believers. It believes that you recognize that the Holy Spirit is at work in other people. That you're not the one that that needs to change people. It believes that eventually they're going to see their own sin. I'm really good at pointing out other people's sin. But love believing all things believes that, that the Lord is going to do a work in their heart. Is going to turn them back to Him. Believe that the Lord working in another believer is going to convict them and change them. We can't change others. It doesn't excuse our responsibility for administering the Word, for holding each other accountable. There's even room for church discipline. It even talks about in the, in the book of Matthew that when somebody has unrepentant sin, one person goes to him. If he doesn't respond, two people go to him. And then the whole body I bring them before the body if they, don't, if they don't repent. Number three, love hopes all things. Paul never gave up on the church of Corinth. Even though things were a mess, he didn't despair. He never gave up hope. Despite his stern words, he had confidence that they would eventually respond properly. When you think about the book of Corinthians, he would admonish them. Then he would say, I got confidence in you. I believe that the Lord working in you, that the Lord is going to complete the good work that he begun. Paul expressed confidence as said in 2 Corinthians 7. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you, believer. Hope in and have confidence in God's sovereign plan. His character and his word are trustworthy. Hope in that. Don't hope in yourself or in other people. Galatians 5 says, I have confidence in you in the Lord. Paul says, I have confidence in you in the Lord. What he's saying there is that I've got faith in you because you are in the Lord and God lives in you. I don't trust you, believer. I don't trust myself. But I trust that as we humble ourselves before the Lord, that he's going to do a work in our hearts. Second Thessalonians 3, and Paul says, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. And brothers and sisters, I've got confidence in the Lord in each of you. I believe that the work that the Lord has begun in each of you And in me, he's going to bring to completion. It's going to be messy on this earth. But remember, God's covered all of our sins. Love hopes all things. Love hopes all things. The fourth and last quality of love is love endures all things. And this is, Paul does this masterfully. It is the perfect way to wrap things up. Endure was a military term used to describe an army holding a vital position at all costs. Every hardship and every suffering was to be endured in the interest of holding fast. It's a military term connoting holding fast. They've got a job to do. It doesn't matter what's going on around them. They're going to hold fast. Love lasts. It holds out. It perseveres in the face of opposition, unkindness, and difficulties. It never gives up. Brothers and sisters, it never gives up. Love for God and people is the only way to endure all things. After love bears all things, it believes. After it believes, it hopes. After it hopes, it endures. There's no after for endurance. For endurance is the unending climax of love. Enduring is the unending climax of love. Take heart, brothers and sisters. 
We've got the greatest example of love this world has ever known. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have no idea if there's anybody in here that has yet to bend their knee. But if you have not put your faith and trust in the living God who died, who took me off the cross, I deserved death. You deserve death. And he picked you up off the cross. And he laid himself down so that you can live life eternally. And believer, whatever areas of love that you're struggling with, take heart. Because you've got Christ in you. You've got the strength and power to overcome any loveless habit you might have. Christ is love. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that your word is so rich. And Lord, you've placed us on an earth that is filled with ugliness and sin. All around us. And Lord, it's our own doing. You didn't create it. We were born into it. And Lord, at times it's hard to love because of our self-centeredness, because of our anger, because of our pride. And Lord, uh, you've overcome all of that. And Lord, I just pray that the main thing that we would rejoice in today is that you are the overcomer. You've overcome sin. You've overcome hate. You've overcome the enemy, the deceiver. And we've got so much joy knowing that we are your children. And that your mercies are new every day. And Lord, I just pray as we started this message, I pray, Lord, that you would just just end it in each of our hearts. That we would be prompted. We'd be convicted. We would not be condemned. And that we'd be reminded that the only account that you've taken in your book, the only account, the only thing you have in your record book, is that we are righteous. And that we are clean positionally before a holy God. We love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. Amen.